Radio advertising is good. Why should you advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340? Well, it's simple. We are a local radio station with local shows that target our local communities and local listeners. We have a variety of shows that cover a multitude of informative and interesting topics, such as automotive and boating, real estate and finance, health and medical, politics and law, sports and fishing, pet care, and more. Why, we are even home to Imus in the Morning. We also have shows about comedy, food and dining, religion, fashion, local community events and activities, and a variety of music. Talk radio provides a listening format that appeals to a large cross-section of people. Whether you are in your car, at work, at home, everyone has a radio. And we are streamed live on the Internet. And past shows are podcasted so you, the listener, can play back your favorite shows over and over again. The possibilities are endless. So that, my listeners, is why you should advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course, and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Interrupting anything, man, Donnie. Well, you must know. Uh, Eric was just leaving. Oh, no, I wasn't. Well, I could make you leave if you asked me. Pluto! Hey, hey, I think you know everybody here. Wait, really, can't you? Oh, no, don't worry. Just keep your hands and feet away from his mouth. Don't you have any respect for yourself? This is absolutely gross. That boy is a P.I.G. pig. See if you can guess what I am now. I'm a zit. Get it? All right, you bastard. Let's go right here. It wasn't that great. 
Okay, hey listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we are live here at uh, Studios in downtown Clearwater at the uh, Tam Talk 1340 Studio. Anyway, hey, we got a great show for you tonight. We got a couple of good songs. We got some funny clips. I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, Animal House one. That was uh, kind of a, uh, a request by our uh, special guest tonight. We got a great guest for you tonight, another legendary race car driver, you know, and uh, so this is going to be a really exciting show as well. Anyway, hey, we got that first song fired up there, uh, Mr. Bill? We got the first song fired up, sir. Okay, how you doing, Mr. Bill? Hi. <laughs> how you doing? I'm doing fine. Okay, rotate that turntable. Rotating the turntable now. Yes, sir. Ah, Captain. Now, some people like to fight. Others don't. And some people like to write, but others won't. Me? I think out of the two, here's the one I want to do. If you put me in a ring, for a few rounds of boxing, I'll fall down right there on the ground. Cause I'm a writer, not a fight. I'm a writer, not a fight. I'm a writer. Hey, baby, I'm a writer, 
listeners. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Hey, we're live, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, run your computers, flip on those little darlings, and go to Tantalk1340.com, and we are streamed live, and you'll see me sitting in the studio. Right now, right now I'm waving. Uh, this is live radio. Anything's possible. Right, Mr. Bill? We got it, man. We got it. Okay, hey, let's go to some of our live reads real quick. Hey, it's Wednesday night, so therefore, guess what, Bill? It's open night, Mike, at Naughty Nancy's, okay? It's open night, Mike, Naughty Nancy's. That's right. Give her a call. Bring your harmonica and your mandolin and your guitar. I I did. I ordered $20 of food there two days ago. Well, good for you. Anyway, food's great. Food is good at Naughty Nancy's, no question. Anyway, so it's open night, Mike, so bring your your little instruments and go out there and sing like little canaries, Okay. And uh, give her a call over there. The number is 446-3717. That's 446-3717. She's a quarter of a mile north of Drew Street on the trail, okay? Hey, don't forget, tomorrow night's Thursday, every Thursday evening, starting at 5 o'clock, Quaker Steak and Lube Car Show. Yeah, a couple hundred cars show up to that. I went there last year, last week, Bill. Is that tonight? No, that's tomorrow night, Thursday. And oh, okay. I, I got there late, but uh, there were still a bunch of cars there because I had to work. I had my second job I got to do, you know, because uh, at any rate, and don't forget Sunshine Drag Strip Wednesday night. That's two night. Okay, they got test and tune. Ten bucks. Go out there and blow up your Where's car. Where's that at? That's out by uh, Almerton Road. Sunshine Drag Strip. It's been around for a long time. So uh, when I say blow up your car, I mean you know if you got a Chevrolet, blow it up. You got a Ford. Well, I beat them Chevrolets, okay? Me being a Ford guy, I can say that. Because I want some controversy out there. That's what yeah, I want when tonight. You're, when you're racing another guy, you're really not racing the other guy. You're racing your time, right? Uh, yeah, but it, but mentally you think you're racing the other guy. So if you if you're even up, if you're kind of match racing a little bit, you know, and you kind of you know you got both got eleven or twelve second cars, you know, you're you're racing the other guy. Because the, really the big deal is it's the first 
100 feet. If you get out of the hole and you beat him, as far as you're concerned, you beat him because you got out of the hole first. So that's kind of the way it works in drag racing. Yeah, you want to beat him down at the other end of the quarter mile, and you want to beat him bad by multiple car lengths. But for the most part, if you beat him out of the hole, especially if he's a faster car, and you do beat him out of the hole, and you do get to the other end of the eighth mile before he does, you're a happy camper. But you can still win because you you didn't beat him because your time your time has got to match close together. Well, right? that's if you're bracket racing and you're racing against the clock. Yeah, so in other words, if you're running on an index or something like that, so let's say you're running on a 1250 index or something like that, and you run 1251, you're, you're okay. If you go to a 1249, you broke out by one second and lost. So, yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's, so it gets, gets complicated. It and get, I can never understand it. Yep. Well, that's a long subject for another day because we are going to try to get Don Perdome on. Since you're a big drag racing fan, I'm going to try to get Don Perdome. Don, if you're listening out there, you need to come on this radio show because i got a lot of drag racing fans out there, and you are the man. So anyway, Don the Snake Perdome is going to be on the show here sometime in the near future. Hey, also don't forget, if you're a big car show guys and uh, really big into swap meets, if you can make it next weekend in pennsylvania there is the spring fling well actually the spring carlisle show okay that's april 21st through the first okay i got a couple of sponsors i want to say hello to that's my friends over there at john and uh mark at cop cars online so if you want a really cool cop car cruiser i know bill you want one and um and they got vans and they got pickup trucks and they got uh suvs so if you want something really cool give the guys over there at cop cars online that's 536-2677-727 area code 536-2677 give those boys a call over there and if you're in the market for a classic car give my friends danny and dave and darwin and uh jay up there and ace and everybody else and terry and bill and ray and mark and the rest of the crew up there at golden classics homer and hazel they homer and hazel they're up there too that's at uh, golden classics you can check out their website goldenclassics.com 727-449-1962 that's 727-449-1962 hey uh lola wanted me to do a promo for the uh cigar lady angie so you, you're familiar with that why don't you do that promo real quick for her tell her what's coming up after our show tonight you know that Oh, after your show, it's a never too late show. All right, what's up? Never too late show. They they talk about uh, many many subjects. Okay, and well, they're that's... always they're always out at a cigar establishment, a brick and mortar place. Okay, well, tune in to that show afterwards if you're into cigars and kind of really interesting topics which we don't talk about in this show because we are a family show and we are automotive oriented motorcycles, boats. Maybe one of these days hey, we'll get in airplanes and we keep it kind of you know. We keep it kind of domestic around here. Where's the Where's the Dukes of Hazard car? It was over there on Highland, and now did he sell it? Oh, that's a buddy of mine. No, you mean it's not on Clover Lager Road? Yeah. What, what happened to that? Where oh, they, t- so they sold that car, and somebody took it and took it home, and now they're restoring the car. So that'll be kind of cool. That'll be out and running and driving the next uh, three to six months. Do you know who's got the car? Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, I'll say. Matter of fact, that's my friends over there, Hillman Automotive. Let's give them a plug tonight. That's five eight one thirty one forty six five eight one thirty one forty six. And they'll bring it once they finish it. They'll bring it by here so we can take a look at it. Yeah, we'll have a big party and ride in it and stuff. Absolutely. Okay. We'll, I'll let you slide across the hood right. like Bo Duke. All right. Is that what his name? Bo Duke. Is that who I'd it was? Like to do that. All right. Okay. Hey, what do we got fired up on that uh, turntable? What's up next? I don't know. You got something here from Gilbert and Sullivan? Some kind of uh, well, lawn- this is opera style. So, uh, uh, like opera. I said, this is a cultural show. So we have to. Kind of convey to our listeners that we we go we run the gamut. So we have a little ju- juvenile pinafore. Well, no, well, no, it's it's a play. Okay, oh, it's so, a play. Yeah. So, and it's not a it's not something dumb. It's if you're oh, in it's opera, very classic. It's very classic, classical. <laughs> when I was. 
was a lad, I served a term as office boy to an attorney's firm. I cleaned the windows and I swept the floor, and I polished up the handle of the big front door. I polished up that handle so carefully that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Office boy, I made such a mark that they gave me the post of a junior clerk. I served the Ritz with a smile so glad, and I copied all the letters in a big round hand. I copied all the letters in a hand so free that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Serving wits, I made such a name that an article clerk I soon became. I wore clean collars and a brand new suit for the pass examination at the institute. And pass examination, it's a well for me that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Of legal knowledge, I acquired such a grip that they took me into the partnership. And that junior partnership I mean was the only ship that I ever had seen. But that kind of ship so suited me that now I am the ruler of the Queen's Navy. I grew so rich that I was sent by a pocket borough into Parliament. I always voted at my party's call, and I never thought of thinking for myself at all. I thought so little they rewarded me by making me the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Now, landsman all, whoever you may be, if you want to rise to the top of the tree, if your soul isn't fetter to an office stool, be careful to be guided by this golden rule. Stick close to your desks and never go to sleep. <laughs> and you all may be rulers of the Queen's Navy. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about Naughty Nancy. No, this isn't a story about a bad girl. This is a truth about a great place to eat and hang out. Naughty Nancy's Food Shack, located at 700 Eldridge Street in the downtown Clearwater area, is a quaint little place nestled under some huge oak trees serving great food and drink and a wonderful, friendly atmosphere. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. They have 10 daily specials as well as many different styles of cooking from Cajun, New England, Country, Gourmet, and even Short Order, prepared just the way you want it. So check out this groovy little dew drop in right on the trail. So jog up to her front door, ride up on your bicycle, drive up in your car, or pull up on your motorcycle, and visit my friend Nancy and place your order. That's Naughty Nancy's, 727-446-3717. Hey, mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and you might get a free drink. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business, and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotaka's Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotaka's Towing, located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotaka's Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure to mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount. Chicago, the passengers are beginning to panic. Why don't we start down? 
Not just yet. I've been radar range any second now. I don't understand. It should have been arranged ten minutes ago. Gunnison, check the radar range. Anything yet? It's about two more minutes, Chief. Two more minutes? It could be miles off course. That's impossible. They're on instruments. Hey, we're back. Hey, did you got that other clip lined up for us too there? This is uh, Robert at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. You tuned in, and we're just about ready to introduce our guest. You got that other one lined up for it? It's on the uh, thing there. Got to get that one in there. Squeeze that one in if you can. Yeah, see if you can. You got that? Click it on, and let's, uh, this is kind of like, uh, we're going to get this little intro thing going, and then I'm going to introduce our guest. But let me tell you a little bit about him real quick. While Bill is looking to get our little audio thing going here, our little clip. Uh, Our special guest for the evening is a well-known sports journalist and broadcaster. But more importantly, he is a legendary race car driver. Having competed, really, in sports car, that's where he started out. Then he went to Can-Am. Then he went to Trans-Am. He's done IndyCar, F1, even one NASCAR event. Okay? I mean, you know what? I think I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest right now. I am delighted to introduce Mr. Sam Posey to Nostalgic Radio and Car. Sam, are you there? I certainly am, Robert. It's How about nice that? to hear your voice. Yeah, likewise. How you doing? I'm doing great. I heard uh, little Gilbert and Sullivan playing there for a moment. I did. Are you familiar with that one? That was uh, when I was Pirates a lot. Li- Penzance. You yeah. bet I am. Okay, super. And uh, But anyway, hey, you got that clip lined up for us? Hey, I got this clip. Hey, sit tight here, Sam. I want you to listen to this, see if this brings back some old memories for you. There's something uh, well-known in racing, sort of known as the tigering instinct. People, drivers, something irritates them, something goes wrong, and all of a sudden they just don't care what happens. They just, they're just ready to blaze around in the race car. You just kind of get in there and you bash and smash and everything comes out right. did go through into the lead, something told me that I should drive the next few laps just to, with complete abandon. And, and after that, I tore up into the S's and the hairpin and just threw the car all over the road. And anyway, I was able to pour that lead on. And I think David, um, I think he was probably a little baffled and surprised, possibly. Just the right way, which is we just flat put it on them. Woo. 
Okay, Sam, does that bring back some old memories for you? Boy, was that fun. That was <laughs> mid-Ohio, 1971. I was just back from Lamar, where we finished third. I was engaged, or certainly in love with my wife-to-be, Ellen. She was there, and we beat David Hobbs, who was my nemesis. So it was the trifecta. How about that? Now, let me ask you a question uh, while we're on the subject of that particular race. And you, uh, you and David Hobbs used to kind of battle it out quite a bit back in the day, didn't you? Well, yeah. In 1971, we were on the front row of the grid for almost all of the races. And he, although he won most of them, I won a couple of big ones. And uh, we were great rivals. And we did a lot of promotion uh, for the series, which was sponsored by L&M. And both of us, in the course of that summer, got the experience with both radio and television that resulted in our each having a, a long contract, a long career, I should say, in, in television. David with... Uh, CBS uh, doing NASCAR mostly, and me with ABC doing Indy and some other stuff, and we were very lucky that we had that summer there. Now, tell us a little bit how you got started in racing. You're from upstate New York or Connecticut originally, is that where it is? Northwest Connecticut. I actually grew up in the city in New York, but we came up here for weekends. I live up here now Mm -hmm. on a farm, and it was just one of those things. We had tractors and old jalopies and stuff like that, and I went out... um, uh, in the fields and learned to drive when I was five or six and uh, kind of took it from there. Did you have some encouragement from your uh, relatives, your family and stuff like that? Because I know your father passed away at an early age where he was involved in what World War II. Is that what it was? Right, right. He was killed at Okinawa right near the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. My mom was a fantastic driver. Um, I say was. She died last summer. But she uh, had a real knack for driving and, and an appreciation of a well-driven curve, and she talked to me about it, and I think that was in the background for me always. But the main thing was I just had a feel for it, you know, mm-hmm. a slippery uh, field with the car sliding all over the place. I, I felt comfortable, not scared at all. What were some of the first sports cars you raced? Well, I actually started with what was called a Formula V, Okay. Uh, which was a single seater with a formula with a Volkswagen engine in it, mm-hmm. only about forty five horsepower, little light car, eight hundred pounds. But the reason I went into that class was that it was hotly competitive, and what you want to do when you're starting out is get in a class where there are thirty people that can beat you. You have to beat every one of them, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a good start for me. And I'm very happy that. Uh, I was able to graduate from that class pretty quickly. Well, now you so you had a really strong competitive spirit then. I take it, right? Yeah, and I don't know why really. Um, I wasn't good at anything in school. I was lousy at sports, lousy, got terrible grades. And he, but here was this one thing I could do. My best friend uh, John Whitman, uh, who surpassed me in every possible respect, until we got in cars, and then I had the the edge and it was just um, one of those things where you go where you see that you can have the future how did you make it from formula v at 45 horsepower and then jump right into can m i mean was that did you just go from sports cars into can m cars because those things were unlimited that was the ultimate racing car back in the late 60s early 70s yeah there were a couple of cars in between but not very much time okay. uh, because i uh, started racing in may of uh, 65 and by June of '66, uh, I was at Le Mans, and by September of '66, I was in the Can Am. Um, those days were a lot simpler than today, believe me. Um, and I had a modest inheritance. You mentioned my dad's death, 
I was able to actually buy a number of my early rides. Uh, today, this believe me, this inheritance would be good for tires for a couple of races. <laughs> but then it went a far a long way, and uh, if you had the desire, it was very, very dangerous. And you've got to remember that it was quite a different sport, um, and uh, very few people were inclined to do it. So you were, uh, if you if you did, if you were willing to take the risks, you could get the rides. So when you went from sports cars, and then you mentioned that you had gone to Le Mans, so you must have been such a great talent at the time that people just basically picked up on you and said, "Hey, look, this guy can drive. He's got a natural talent and an affinity for driving. Let's put him in a really good cars." I mean, to go from sports car local SCCA events, I presume, and then right into a you know major races, a race circuit, and then and and the ultimate sports car track really is is Le Mans. Um, that must have been just uh, 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 an overwhelming experience at the time. Yeah, it was. And uh, the car I drove at Le Mans, the Bizzarini, was... Um, a Bizzarini, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm not kidding. Was, uh, it was an amazing car. It had a top speed of about 180 and no seat belts. No seat and, belts. And uh, the crew was Giotto Bizzarini's class from uh, the University of Pisa, where he was a professor. They didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Italian. And uh, they changed the brake pads without my knowing it overnight before the race. And I went out, and in those days, you had to bed in the brake pads. I arrived at the end of the Mulsanne straight in heavy traffic, going 180, and no brakes. Oh, my. I went down the escape road, slaloming through the uh, hay bales, which they had in rows, and got back on the track. But it was a real adventure. I mean, just being over there basically as a kid, uh, exposed to probably the most dangerous course in the world in a car that was very iffy, to say the least. Well, now, the Bizzarini was basically uh, uh, based off the ESO Griffo, if I remember correctly, and I think that was, did you, was your Chevrolet powered or Ford powered? Yes, no, Chevrolet, you okay. got it exactly right. And uh, so it was like a low-slung version of an ESO Griffo, and if I remember correctly, Bizzarini either worked for uh, ESO and then left and did his own car, or did he work with um, Lamborghini? I can't remember, one of the Italian um, car He worked for Ferrari for oh, he worked. Okay. But, uh, he had terrific credentials. Uh, then he went on his own. And it, it was never a great success, um, but uh, he did achieve a, a, a modicum of uh, success, I would say. And that race, in that particular one, um, did they have more than? Did they campaign more than one car, or was it just the one Bizzarini? There were two. Um, the second car was an open sports car uh, driven by a guy called Bernay, who had broken his leg just uh, a couple of weeks before the race and had it in a cast. But he was so determined to do the race and to start the race, and this was in the day where you lined up across from your car. Mm, a Le Mans start. Parked at an angle, uh, and you raced over and leapt into it. Well, he raced over, leapt into his, and got his cast all screwed up on the accelerator and spun out right in front of me oh. as we were headed up the first straightaway. So I, we damn near totaled both cars uh, right away in the first seconds of the race. How competitive was that cl- car, and in what class did you race? I don't remember the class. It wasn't very competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an overheating problem and uh, wound up out of the race in less than an hour, which probably saved my life. Okay. Now, you, I know you've referenced that in, in a number of uh, um, articles about how dangerous the sport was and in some of the drive, some of the tracks and stuff. So, well, you you were, a lot of drivers didn't seem didn't. It, didn't seem to put a lot of emphasis on safety. It was just all about getting it. Kind of like in that little skit, that little um, little segment that I played for you. You know, you just you get in the car, you get focused, and does the safety and all the other issues? Does that just go out the window, and all you want to do is just win? 
Is that it? Yeah, yes. You you really if you've worried about your um, safety, you're probably not going to be a very good driver. It was just the price of admission for being in the sport at that point. But remember, this was surprisingly close, believe it or not, to the end of World War II, and there was a whole different way of looking at life than we look at it now. Uh-huh. Um, and the preservation of life has become so precious to us and so technically possible. In those days, it was a completely different attitude that you had to the sport. Uh, you looked upon yourself frankly, is something of a romantic figure because of taking the risk. Uh-huh. So then after you came back from Le Mans, when did you get into Trans Am racing? Was that in like 66, uh, 67? Or was yeah, little... I, I, first I raced in the smaller class. There, were, there was an under two-liter class and an over two-liter class. Okay. And I raced in the smaller cars um, and then graduated to the larger ones in 69, and drove for Shelby one race at Lime Rock, which I won. Okay. And then, uh, no, 68, I'm sorry, I drove for Penske for four races, and then uh, for Shelby in 69. And then in 70, we had our own team, uh, which was the Dodge Challenger, the lime green, uh, the great boats of a car, but they were really fun to drive. Let me ask you a question, too, while you're on the subject about the Trans Am. I actually met you at, uh, the first time I met you was somewhere in the 90s, that that car was actually on display at Daytona, the green, I think it was the car that you actually drove. Yeah. And um, that, what was, the Challenger historically wasn't a very good ha- handling car, unlike the Camaro, and uh, naturally not as good as the Mustang. So, you know, it has that torsion bar suspension. What all did they do to that car um, to make that car handle, and then how much feedback did you give back to the mechanics as a driver to maybe have them improve the handling and, and, and drivability of that race car? Well, the rules were so flexible that uh, the, what the car had as a stock machine had nothing to do with us at all. Oh, really? We started in what was called with a body in white, which was just a shell, and built the car to our own specifications, roll cage, suspension, brakes, everything was free. So we we didn't have the torsion bars. We had a conventional coil spring suspension. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I never really looked at that car that close, but that seems to stand the reason there. Okay. And then you did Indy for a while, and then what was? Then you made the you were doing some K&M racing. What? Which K&M cars were you racing, and what was that like? I mean, because now you're at you know unlimited horsepower. Yeah, I love the unlimited horsepower. I gotta say, um, my first K&M car was a McLaren. Uh, with a Ford engine uh, built by Sh- uh, Shelby that had only about 400 horsepower. We were blown away by the Chevys, but we were very reliable. Mm-hmm. And then I moved up to uh, bigger and bigger Chevys as time went on and enjoyed myself uh, immensely in the uh, four or five years I was involved with a Can-Am. When you sat in the wheel of a Can-Am car with, say, six or 700 horsepower behind you, it was a feeling that you would really, you really had your hands full, but in a way that it was thoroughly enjoyable to me. I mean, when you came onto a straight and floored it, you just you moved down that straight with such rapidity that it was just it was a thrill, frankly, and I never got over it. So, would you say that the K&M cars probably made the most impression on you in terms of a car and power and performance and handling? Um, yeah, I think so, except uh, the Le Mans Ferraris in 70 and 71, the 5-liter uh, sports prototype 512M and then uh, S first and then M. They were marvelous cars. Um, the, the S that I had, that was a special long tail, did 245 miles an hour on the Mulsanne Strait. 
Oh, wow. That, that's nifty. And uh, the cars were very stable and uh, steady. You felt you could push them hard without any fear. Ferrari at that point was noted for the reliability of their engines. They had that V12. It had a wonderful exhaust note. It was a thrill to go down the straight and look down at the center of the steering wheel and see the prancing horse emblem. And you think to yourself, I'm racing for Ferrari at Le Mans. It doesn't get much better than that. So then my next question would be, and this is a question I have to ask everybody, if you're a race car driver and you race in Europe, whether you race Formula One or you're road racing, is to sit behind the wheel of the prancing horse, the Ferrari, is that the epitome of achievement for a race car driver to drive that particular mark? Is that a fair statement? I want to say yes, because romantically it certainly is. And in most cases, they they are very competitive. Um, You wouldn't want one in Formula One right now. You'd rather be with Red Bull. But um, the... um, there's a certain history there, when, particularly when Enzo Ferrari was alive. Um, you felt very proud to be part of that uh, whole legend that led stretched back into the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. So, like, and then now you did do some F1 driving, and then and that was for Surtees, right? Is that who you? Very raised? little, yeah. I did the U.S. Grand Prix twice in '71 and '72. Um, first time, first time. Uh, uh, the engine blew early in the race, and the second uh, race we finished 11th. And uh, what kind of cars was Surte driving? I mean, what was the brand? It was a Surtees. Oh, it was called a Surtees. Uh, he built okay. his own cars. Okay. And the way I got the ride was we had, as a team, we had bought his Formula 5000 car and raced that in the U.S. Uh, the, in that summer. That's the, what the, uh, the your tape comes from. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had done well enough with that that he invited me to drive at the Formula One race. Okay, and then what he used for dry, uh, for power plants in his cars was he using? That was a Ford Cosworth. It was a Ford four hundred and fifty horsepower, a very light engine, uh, very strong both in torque and high end horsepower, and reliable, very reliable. Wow! So then, and then you also did some Indy car racing. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my car owner um, Fred Carrillo, who makes the Carrillo rods that are so famous. Okay. I'd always had the dream of going to Indy, and my chief mechanic, Jack McCormick, also had that dream. And so we, uh, and we knew Dan Gurney. So for those ingredients, we wound up putting a down payment on an Eagle as yet unbuilt, uh, just blindly, hoping that it would be a good car. And uh, it turned out that in the first test, it broke the lap record at Ontario the first day out, and it was fantastic. But we didn't have the money to buy it. So Dan Gurney lent us his PR man for a week. He said, if you can raise the money in a week, you can buy the car. And I won't take you off the list. And uh, Max Molman was the guy, and he raised the money for us, and we went to Indy and finished fifth. Wow. So a great, happy story. How many, uh, how many, see, you raced, what, Indy, what, three or four times? Just once. Oh, just once, okay. But did you drive Indy cars at different venues? Yes, yes. I okay. drove for Granatelli uh, in uh, four-wheel drive STP Lotus Turbine, okay. um, and uh, that was a gas, and uh, I drove some uh, other road races and some uh, quite a few uh, ovals. I love the ovals. Well, now, I, I was just going to ask that. Okay, so in other words, when you were driving the Indy cars, you know, what's your take on, what's your feel? Do you, do you enjoy the oval more, 
or did you actually drive the road course more? Because you're more of a road race kind of guy, driver anyway, Yeah, right? I felt more at home, in a sense, in the road course, but I really welcomed the challenge of the Oval. I feel Phoenix, for example, is the one of the great tracks of the world. I'm afraid they're redoing it right now as we speak, which is going to take a lot of the edge out of it. But um, I love that high-speed uh, turns, and I, I rude the fact that I didn't have the sprint car experience uh, which you need for the tactical sense of what to do in heavy traffic. I didn't have that like the Unsers do or whatever. But I really enjoyed the fast turns and the obvious challenge of the thing. Did I wasn't the... terribly good at it, but I loved it. Okay. Um, and then what about F1? I mean, now it sounds like you did quite a bit of driving in basically single-seater cars, you know? So yeah, are you... well, most of it was in Formula 5000, okay. uh, which is a wonderful was a wonderful series and much... Uh, uh, attended by the best drivers of the day, but quite forgotten because it, it was not a commercial success, and um, it just uh, faded away. And, and all, I mean, a large percentage of my achievements are in this class that nobody remembers, which is kind of unfortunate. You know, uh, an interesting story. There's a gentleman here in town who's also a real good friend of mine. He used to work on my Porsches back in the day, and his name's Frank Ibell. And I don't know. And I was just I called him earlier this evening. I said, "Hey, guess who's coming on my show tonight? I'm going to have Sam Posey on." He says, "Oh, wow!" And he says, "I used to race against him." But what he was, he was an engine builder. And there was a gentleman by the name of, and I can't. I'm not sure if I can pronounce his last name right, but it's Bruce Eggert or Egger something or other. Does that name ring a bell? And, These uh, names both ring a bell, yes. And uh, uh, Frank was telling me the story that I guess the car that they got was also formerly a gurney car. And he was talking about at one of the races, and it might have been Minotayo, that this other gentleman who evidently had had a real bad car wreck, and he had gotten burned, and then he was out of the racing for a while, but he wanted to get back in his, into it. He got back. He recovered, recuperated. He was at one of the races, but before he got there, as the story goes, uh, you walked up first and walked up, and Frank was standing there, and the car was evidently on the grid or getting ready to be pulled on the grid, and, and uh, Mr. Bruce wasn't there yet. And you asked uh, Frank, he said, well, you know, if this guy doesn't show up, you know, I might be interested in driving this car for him, you know, because you guys knew that the car was extremely fast. Frank was had a real knack for building fast engines. And, uh, and then about 15 minutes later, David Hobbs, your nemesis, actually friend, you know, because you guys were really competitive at the time, he walked up and asked the same question. Well, nonetheless, uh, Bruce showed up later, and I guess he raced, and he came and he kept falling back. I think it was third place for a while, fourth place, fifth place, or whatever. And I guess you went on to win the race. Now, I'm not sure if it's that exact race, but it may have been one of those races somewhere in Elkhart Lake or mid-Ohio or one of the, you know, the Midwestern uh, tracks. So does that story kind of ring a bell a little bit? It does a little bit, but the only thing that seems a little out of position is that uh, my deals with my team were always for okay. the whole season. And I can't imagine that I would have been there and actually been in a position to drive a rival team's car. Okay. That's the only thing that seems a little out of whack. Okay. But news that I won the race is very encouraging. Okay. Now, unfortunately, that limits it to very few races. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but, it. I had Mario on uh, Mario Andretti on last week, and I had Johnny Rutherford on a couple t- uh, uh, once before, and I had Bobby Rahal. And, it, you know, like a lot of you drivers, it was extremely, extremely competitive. And in some cases, you either had mechanical failures, engine failures, car failures, driver error, uh, you know, as a result of somebody else. So, you know, when you look back in history, you guys were there. You guys are the legends. You guys really were kind of like the pioneers, in my opinion, of when – because in the 60s era, early 70s, there was a lot of experimentation going on, a lot of transition, a lot of development, and a lot of radical designs, okay, which was kind of cool. It was before all the rules and regulations got in and kind of 
dominated the sport like they do today, which kind of takes some of the fun out of it, in my opinion, or the competitiveness. And so, you know, whether you guys won the races or whether you lost, the fact of the matter is you guys competed and you were there. And that, to me, that's impressive. I used to read it. I was a kid back then. I used to read about you and I used to read about Parnelli Jones and I used to read about Penske and all you guys. And that's one of the reasons why I I really enjoy this radio show, because now I get to sit there and have my legendary hero, so to speak. I get to talk to you guys in real life and interview you guys. So it's, it's great. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show. It's great, Sam. Well, thank you. Let's not confuse me with Mario Andretti or Johnny Rutherford. Well, you <laughs> Those know, guys who were, were the legends that I was fortunate enough to be on the track at the same time and see how good they were, how committed they were, um, and uh, admire them. And now, in our later years, become close friends with them. Mm-hmm. Now, you when did when about what year did you kind of like? decide to kind of semi-retire from racing, and then you got into broadcasting and, uh, and, and motorsports journalism a little bit, right? Well, the, the TV came very, uh, while I was still uh, very active in racing, uh, two years after I raced at Indy, which was 72, in 74, I was up in the booth with Jim McKay calling the race, and uh, it kind of went from there. I became more and more of a broadcaster and less and less of a racer, um, and uh, I enjoyed very much the opportunities that ABC gave me because it was not limited to, I shouldn't say limited, but it wasn't uh, just car racing um, and Indy, but I got to do the Olympics and the Iditarod and the uh, Ironman and all sorts of stuff. Well, yeah, it's, I was reading somewhere where you... Uh, you, you uh, uh do the correspondence and you do some of the um, um, commentary on the Tour de France, too. So that's the biking yes, thing. Yes, I forgot the tour. Yeah. That was huge. I did that for five years and uh, loved every minute of it. I think the Tour de France is the great event of the, of the world right now. I really do. So, the hardest uh, event to win. Is it in terms of cycling? Yes. Well, no, just in any term. I mean, because, first of all, it's three weeks, and it demands a, a, a superb tactical sense coupled with luck, coupled with incredible fitness, um, and just all around, you've got to be able to ride a bike in a way that, that most people never dream of. Wow. Uh, oh, yeah, real quickly, just to go back, regress, or digress for a second, um, you did one NASCAR event. What was that about? I couldn't find much information on it, so tell us about that. Well, I had just uh, signed with Chrysler to drive the Challenger in the Trans Am, mm-hmm. and they said, as long as we've signed you... Uh, We'd like you to drive for Cotton Owens um, out oh, really? of Riverside, um, but because Buddy Baker, frankly, isn't much of a road racer, and uh, we'd like to see this car as competitive as possible. So I got out there, met Cotton Owens, and he was, of course, quite a legend and quite a character and everything. Mm-hmm. Got in the car, qualified third or fourth, I forget, because it was right up my alley, and I rolled into the pits, and he said, Sam, if I'd realized you were a real driver... I'd have brought my real car. <laughs> he brought one of his third-rate cars out there, not thinking that I was going to be anything at all. And uh, I was able to run um, third for much of the race until the engine blew, and there were flames coming up around my crotch in the damn cockpit. So I spun the car and snuffed the flames out. Oh, wow. And uh, that was that. That was my NASCAR race. But it was a great pleasure to be part of that, and I feel honored to have had a NASCAR start. Um, what kind of car was it? Was it a Ford, Chevy, Dodge? Oh, it was it a Dodge, was a obviously. Dodge. That's right. Okay, yeah. Um, was it, it wasn't a Superbird or anything like that, was it? No, but it, I wish it was. He brought the one that wasn't streamlined. It was just a regular 
whatever it was. Okay. Um, just out of curiosity, now you uh, some of the and I always ask this because we were talking about drivers and what what really sets a really really good driver apart from from just a driver driver. So here you are, you did very well. You know, first time out in a NASCAR, you've raced Indy, you've raced Trans Am, you've raced Can Am, sports cars, F one. Now short of doing sprint cars and uh, and and midgets or anything like that. It seems like you had you were just as talented. You could just about get into any car and make it do what you wanted. You had total complete and total control of that vehicle. So that kind of makes you you know puts you up there with some of the greatest drivers to be able to get in any car and command that car. You know, some people can only do very well in certain kinds of cars and certain kind of racing. Yes. Remember though that it was a time when you did a lot of that. I mean, most of the drivers, Gurney and Andretti, and the guys that I raced with. We did four or five different types of racing each year. It wasn't as specialized as it is now. Um, and so we had the opportunity to go from a Can-Am car one weekend uh, to an Indy car the next. It was fantastic. So how many events would you say you raced? Or I mean, how many weeks out of the year did you race back in those days? Oh, when you were 30, in your... 35. Oh, really? Okay. So you were fairly active at it then. Yeah. Okay. Did you... Um, now, w- when you... When did you make the decision to kind of finally say, you know, because you referenced earlier that you know, the sport was kind of dangerous, so I'm sure that was somewhat in the back of your mind. When did you decide to just kind of like not race anymore from a professional standpoint and just do more of the commentating and maybe just some freelance driving? Or I presume you got involved in some vintage racing like a lot of race car drivers do? Actually, no, on the vintage racing. But I'll tell you that there was a significant moment when I decided I would curtail my racing. And that's when uh, my wife, Ellen, and I were sitting in her apartment in uh, Capistrano Beach, California, and we heard over the news that Mark Donahue had just been killed. Mark had been a teammate. He was a close friend. He was in every way a better driver and a better person, frankly, than I was. And uh, uh, if he could be killed, I knew I could be killed. And uh, other drivers, I'd always found some excuse uh, thinking, well, it could happen to them, but it could never happen to me. And with Mark, I didn't find any excuses. So I stopped open-wheel racing, raced for uh, Bob Sharp in the Datsun sedans for a little while, and then did one last big race uh, with Brian Redman in a Lola T600, which was a formidable car, like a Can-Am car with a roof, and uh, finished second and clinched the championship for him that day. And as we all sat around that evening drinking and everything i said to myself that's it i've quit wow just like that you could just make that decision yeah wow um now what do you today what 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 are some of the things that you're doing today to kind of keep you busy because did you do back in the day one more question did you do a lot of testing too or did you it was pretty much racing because a lot of drivers did testing like for example mario did testing for tires and he might have done some engine testing and then some of the other drivers did testing for various manufacturers because you mentioned that you drove for andy granatelli which was stp back in the day did you do any testing for any of his products or anything like that well no i don't think andy's products were ever tested they were snake oil stuff uh, but uh yeah i did a lot of testing for goodyear and of course for dodge and uh, Ferrari and so forth. Uh, it was a uh, it was almost a necessity to be involved with testing because you needed the miles to keep sharp and to learn new things about, particularly the tires. I was a Goodyear man and very lucky to do quite a bit of their testing, both for sports cars and even for ovals. Uh huh. So today, what does the leisure leisurely Sam Posey do for entertainment? Well, actually, I don't consider myself leisurely. Uh, okay. I have an architectural practice uh, 
which is slow at the moment, is because, of course, the economy is slow, and I've taken advantage of that, and I've returned to my first love, which was figure painting. Oh, really? Um, I have a model who comes and poses nude for me three hours at a stretch, twice a week, and I'm studying the figure and, of course, all the art history that goes with it. I'm just thrilled to death to be doing this. We were talking about this earlier, you and I, that, you know, a lot of people think of race car drivers as just, hey, I got to get in the car, go fast, and hit the pedal to the metal. But really, a lot of you guys are very educated, uh, informed, uh, cultural, you know. I mean, you've written books, you've written articles, you're into art. Uh, you wrote a book, uh, something to do with model railways, too. I mean, you're into model railroad collecting. Yep, yep, I have. I'm sitting up in my living room, which is directly above the north end of my model railroad, which is HO scale. It's about 60 feet long, and it's uh, modeled after uh, the Colorado Midland, which is a railroad that actually existed uh, just before World War I. Uh, and I have, I have this fantastic railroad down there that I, uh, I built over the course of 16 years. Wow. And you wrote a book, and it's called Mudge Pond Express. Now, that's pretty much a book about your whole racing uh, your life in Through involved? the first two-thirds of my career, yeah, okay. um, an autobiography. And I'm sitting, again, about a quarter of a mile from Mudge Pond. It's just through the trees down the hill where I am. And uh, I called it that because we had a little uh, car, uh, sort of a, uh, like a sled with wheels, that we coasted down to the lake uh, on this paved road that led through our farm down to the lake from our house. Oh, really? Was it like a little... Uh, just, I mean, a regular, like a little Crosley or something like that, or was it... No, uh, no, no, there was no engine. It was just uh, oh. like a sled with wheels. Oh, a sled with wheels. Okay. The engine That's... was gravity. <laughs> the engine was gravity. Okay, yeah, downhill. Okay. Now, you you live up in Connecticut. You're near Lime Rock. So the other uh, a little while ago, you were telling me that uh, you still go out and you have a little uh, open-wheel vintage car that you drive once in a while on the track? Yeah, a Formula Ford. Uh, okay. I take it pretty seriously, actually. Uh, I have Parkinson's, and... Uh, one of the things that's delightful for me is that a lot of the symptoms just seem to vanish uh, when I get near that car. There's something about the adrenaline and the uh, focus and uh, so forth that uh, liberates me from the um, sort of drag of having Parkinson's. I love the car. It's a beautiful car, and I love driving it hard over there. I, my own goal is always my own best time, and I'm always trying to beat that. Um, haven't gotten, haven't beaten it for a couple of the last two outings, I may may have gotten to, to the best I can do. I had a huge crash a couple of years ago. So I was unconscious in the car for 10 minutes, and uh, they had to cut me out of it, which wasn't very good at the age of 65. Wow. But at least you're still, you're, you're still doing it, though. That's the good thing. Well, it's something I do well, and uh, one of the few things, actually. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great thrill to be able to still... At an advanced age, still find that you have the talent and the desire to do this thing. Okay. Well, Sam, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you again very much for coming on the show. Would you uh, be willing to come on again sometime? Sure, you bet. This was a real pleasure, Robert. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I want to tell everybody uh, uh, that's been tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars, we had Sam Posey, legendary race car driver, on our show this evening. Sam, you take care of yourself. You stay healthy. The best of luck to you. Hopefully, I'll see you at some of the future events, probably Amelia Island again. And maybe if I'm up in Lime Rock or someplace like that, we'll get together and have a glass of champagne. You come up to Lime Rock. You look me up. I'll do that. Take care. Hey, everybody else. Thanks for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars next week, 7 o'clock, on the Tantalk Radio Network. Hey, we're all off to Naughty Nancy's. It's open mic night, and we're going to get some great food.
Later, guys. Drive carefully and stay safe. To the other side.